You're listening to The Unifying Call, where we share the voices of our hospital, clinicians and leaders. These are stories to inspire kindness and courage in the face of COVID, presented by Western Health. I'm Cathy Somerville. In this episode, we catch up once again with the resident disease detective at Western Health, Dr. Marion Kaner, who we met in the first episode of The Unifying Call. Marion is the head of our Infectious Diseases Unit. She arrived in Australia in October 2019, after two decades in the United States, where she worked closely with the Centre for Disease Control, the CDC, on the major epidemics and pandemics of the past 20 years. When COVID cases were first reported in the United States, Marion said this would be absolutely devastating for the American people under the Trump administration because it did not believe in science and would not make science-based decisions. Despite her foreboding, Marion says the outcome has been far worse than she expected. This week, on 25th of May, the New York Times highlighted on its front page a tragic milestone when it published the names of 1,000 of the almost 100,000 people who've died in the United States from COVID-19. Marion is grieving the unnecessary loss of so many lives and feels deeply for her CDC and infectious diseases colleagues in the United States whose expert guidance, essential during the worst public health emergency in 100 years, has been completely sidelined. I think that this was going to be bad, but I think it um, didn't need to be nearly as bad as it is. Um, I think there has been an enormous degree of suffering, which could have been avoided if um, leadership had listened to science and made science-based decisions. CDC has provided in-depth guidance on all the details that different sectors of society should take, for example, childcare or restaurants in order to open up in as safe a manner as possible. And yet um, CDC officials were told that guidance would never see the light of day. And so, you know, for hundreds of people to working their hearts out to create the best possible evidence-based, science-based guidance and to have that never see the light of day. It just must be so demoralizing and so completely heartbreaking. Um, So I really, really feel for my colleagues over there. There has not been a media briefing since early March there has not, are you saying, Marion, there has not been a media briefing by the CDC on its own since March? Correct. Since early March. And in and every previous outbreak, most of which you've been present for, including, say, SARS, what would have happened then? Daily briefings to the media. And where would they have sat in terms of advice to the president? Um, they would have had a very prominent 
um, seat at the table. Um, and, you know, their advice would have been listened to and very strongly considered. I mean, the infrastructure which had been um, built up under multiple previous presidents, um, including like the President's Council of Advisors on Science and Technology, um, had been has been completely demolished in the current administration. Um, and so this current administration in the United States appears to not only not listen to science, but be actively anti-science. And I think that is leading to a lot of suffering that is completely needless. And things did not need to be this bad. You know, the there were going to be lives lost, but they, this should never be this bad. And it is just absolutely, totally heartbreaking to see the amount of suffering that is going on over there. The comparison for you, Marianne, with Australia and its approach to taking a more scientific approach, how would you describe that difference? Oh, it's like night and day at the present time. Um, I think in Australia we have overall taken a um, very science-based approach um, and I think the results speak for themselves. I do think um, that the greatest thing we have to fear right now is um, complacency and I think we still need to be incredibly humble in what our understanding is of this virus. It's still early days and there is so much that we still don't fully understand. I mean, this appears to be a virus which does not only affect the respiratory system, it has um, it can have a significant impact on blood clotting, um, with a lot of thrombosis, pulmonary embolism. Um, it can affect the heart, the kidneys, um, the brain. And now, you know, we had hope. There's one glimmer of hope in this virus was that children did not appear to be greatly affected. And yet there has now been these reports of this syndrome, which still appears to be very rare, um, but affecting children in causing the severe inflammation, Kawasaki-like syndrome. Um, so I think, you know, we just need to be very, very humble in be prepared that we are continuing to learn from this vi- about this virus every single day and that means that our guidance and our recommendations need to be changing um we need to remain flexible um and i can absolutely understand it can be really frustrating 
that guidance is changing, but um, we are still in the early days of understanding about this virus. When you say it's the early days, how long do you think it will be for this virus to play out? What do you think the future holds? I think we're going to have to settle to a new normal. Um, until we get an effective vaccine, until we are really hoping that we're going to get an effective vaccine, and realistically, I think um, it's going to be at least 18, 24 months until that vaccine is able to be manufactured in sufficient quantities and also as well delivered or administered to people. I think we're going to have to learn how to live with this virus. Um, and that means that um, a lot of things that we've taken for granted in the past are going to have to change. I think... Um, Physical distancing um, is going to stay with us um, to some degree. And we're going to have to modify the way that we do things. What do you think about how the illness will impact the lives of elderly people in our community? Do you think they might be affected more than, more than others? I mean, the elderly are really one of our most vulnerable population um, and we have seen the most devastating outbreaks in our nursing homes. We need to find a way to keep that vulnerable population safe but still allow them to have an appropriate quality of life. That level of human connection, you just don't fully get via technology. And so we need to find ways of addressing that and yet keeping them safe. And I don't think that anyone has fully, and fully understand what is the best way about doing this. Um, I think probably a good approach may be something that um, involves very regular testing of the staff. It may include um, one of my favorite pieces of personal protective equipment, um, the face shield. Um, you do love that face shield. I've seen you with it. <laughs> I know how much you love the face shield. I, I, I like the face shield. It doesn't hide a significant portion of the face. And so you can see that better facial expression, which is so much part of that human connection. And so I think, um, especially for the elderly, not having staff necessarily or visitors necessarily wearing masks, but being able to go and see people's facial expressions, um, being able to recognize them um, 
I think that can, the field can really play a big part there. When someone has tested positive for COVID, what have you been noticing that the patient really wants to know at that point? Um, very frequently it's concerned for their loved ones. Um, they're really concerned about not infecting them. Who else could they have exposed? Um, and then um, there's a real fear in terms of, you know, am I going to die? And what does that mean? Um, uh, and for some people, it means, well, when can I go back to work? How long am I going to be off work? So I don't say that there are those two ways of looking at it. There's the scientific piece of it, looking at the evidence of it. And it's sort of the rational part of the brain often gets it. Um, but there's sort of like an emotional part where there is still a significant fear associated with that. And the two don't necessarily match. Um, and I think we need to really understand and appreciate that even if somebody is rooted in science and evidence, that fear is something that is very human um, and that does not just rely on statistics and things like that. And probably, I got my big lesson of that back in the early 1990s um, uh, when I worked at Fairfield Hospital. And um, I did a lot of counseling of people who had needle stick injuries, including patients, people who had needle stick injuries from people who were HIV positive. And, you know, your overall statistic was that you had a 1 in 300 chance of becoming positive for HIV. And so I would, you know, counsel probably at least two or three people per week on that risk. And I thought I was doing a reasonable job with that. And then I sat on the other side of that table. I sustained a needle stick injury from a patient who was had very advanced disease, had an incredibly high viral load. It was a very high risk needle stick injury. Um, and this was in the days before there was any evidence that post exposure prophylaxis would work. Um, and I still remember. Um, going to sitting on the other side of the table, as I said, and those statistics didn't mean that much to me at all. Um, and I really got to appreciate just how that emotional side takes over in that sense. And I would repeat to myself, you know, one in 300, one in 300, I would say that to myself 20, 30 times a day. But yes, I still had that fear. Um, inside me. And, and so, did you also think maybe I'm the one in 300? Exactly. And so um, 
And at that, that time, was, it, it was more or less a death sentence, wasn't it? Yes. Yes, it was a very different disease at that time. Marion's reference to HIV is a reminder that to this day, more than 30 years on, there is still no HIV vaccine, despite a huge global focus on this for many years. She agrees that we must come to terms with the fact that there is no guarantee that there will be an effective vaccine for COVID-19, and if there is, it must first be proven to be safe as an unsafe vaccine will have many consequences, including undermining community trust in other established vaccines, setting public health back many decades. She gives the example of a dengue fever vaccine which was rolled out in the Philippines too rapidly and before proven safe. The population lost trust in vaccines and there was a dramatic drop-off in childhood vaccinations, leading to major outbreaks of measles with significant complications and loss of life. She also says even if a suitable vaccine is developed for COVID-19 and can be delivered at the incredible scale it would be required, it may be that it has to be administered every one to two years. There's absolutely no guarantees that there is a vaccine. I think we've got the brightest minds around the world looking at this. Um, you know, there's at least 70 groups um, which are making tremendous efforts to develop a vaccine. But there's absolutely no guarantee that we're going to get one. Um, you've got philanthropists like Bill Gates um, uh, putting tremendous money behind creating the manufacturing capacity at the present time, like investing in, I can't remember how many, at least seven factories to create vaccines, even though we don't even know whether any of these are going to work, in the hope that once we find that one of them works, that the manufacturing capacity is going to be there to pump this out as rapidly as possible. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that is an incredibly wise investment because we have to go and um, not only find out whether a vaccine works, so it protects against the virus, we also need to be really sure that it is safe and one of the things which is concerning to us right now is that this may not be a one vaccine and you're done vaccine. That there is a possibility that even if we find a vaccine that works, is safe, that we can scale up in its manufacturing and deliver it, that that is a vaccine that we may have to um, have every one or two years. I think there's been a tremendous worldwide effort to try and find um, an HIV vaccine, and yet we have not been successful. And so that is something which we do need to be prepared for, that there is a distinct possibility that we will not be able to have a vaccine. And so in addition, to all the efforts going into a vaccine, we also need to see if we can find other treatments 
um, that can decrease the severity of disease and increase survival. Um, and so there's a lot of effort also being made in trying to see if we can potentially repurpose any existing drugs. And there's a lot of clinical trials happening um, right now. And I'm delighted to say that Western Health is participating in on one of those trials, the ASPROT study, um, which is an Australia-wide, Australia-New Zealand-wide study. Um, the design of that study is a really interesting design um, in that it allows us, as soon as we know from our work in Australia or from other studies around the world, we can drop any of those treatment combinations if they are shown to not be helpful and we can add things which would be worthwhile to explore further. So, for example, potentially looking at antibody treatment, so looking at people who've recovered from um, COVID-19 and taking their antibodies and infusing those. So we're moving to what's called an adaptive trial platform um, trial design. So I'm very excited to, for Western Health to participate in that. Do you worry, Marion, about people mistakenly thinking that they should go ahead and you know try to pick up this virus to gain some immunity? I heard someone refer to it as being a bit like the mistaken views about the chickenpox parties where families used to invite people around so they could all get chickenpox. I would strongly advise against doing something like that. Um, yes, it is true that um, people who are elderly and people who have other comorbidities, and so that is diabetes, high blood pressure, um, heart disease, etc., those are particularly badly affected. But then there are people who have absolutely no other risk factors who also can get really sick. Um, and we have no idea what makes one previously healthy person who gets sick with this virus become so sick versus another one is barely a sniffle. We don't understand what is the difference there. And so um, there are, especially in the States, we're getting, in the United States, we're getting a lot of reports of fairly young people who have no other comorbidities being terribly ill, requiring intensive care, requiring ventilation. Um, and this is not a virus where I would want to play the odds here. Or go, you know, I would I would strongly advise against having this chicken pox party type situation. Still learning more and more about this virus every day. But it appears that some people who get this virus appear to have potentially long term effects from this, where it affects their lung capacity. So, you know, we don't know the very long-term effects 
of it because this virus has only been around for a few months. But there are reports of young people who got very ill, who were on the ventilator, who now have a lung capacity of a 70-year-old or an 80-year-old. And that hopefully will improve over time. But their recovery is really, really long and delayed, and there may be long-term damage. So I would really strongly, strongly um, advise people to not get themselves naturally exposed because you, you just don't know whether you're one of those people who's going to get the sniffle um, and have very mild disease or whether you're one of those people who does get severe disease. And, you know, one of those, you know, one of our very first grand rounds, I said, you know, there are good things and bad things about this virus. Um, you know, 80% of people get relatively mild disease. And when I say mild diseases, they don't require hospitalization. So that includes having pneumonia, but being able to be treated as an outpatient. You know, like 20% still, um, you know, need to be hospitalized. And then, you know, 5% requiring intensive care ventilation. Um, and that proportion still appears to hold for people who are symptomatic. I heard one person who'd had the disease who was a journalist in the United Kingdom and he was talking about his experience of having it and he said that for him the fear he had that he was dying when he had the disease, even though he was at home and staying at home, was profound because he felt so unwell. Oh, um, absolutely. Um, people can be really, really unwell um, with this. Um, but, you know, you know, when I was saying there is the good part and there's the bad part, the proportion of people who become really ill is actually relatively small compared to something such as avian influenza, which has, you know, a 50% mortality. Or like MERS, Middle East Respiratory Syndrome Coronavirus, a different coronavirus, which has about a 35% mortality. So this virus in comparison has a much, much smaller mortality. We can be really grateful to that. Can you explain for us why herd immunity is a pretty awful option here? Because to get to that point, there would be, I understand, so many deaths. Can you just describe why herd immunity is not something we can chase as the goal at this point? Is that correct? With this virus, as I said beforehand, there's still lots of things which you don't fully understand. Um, one of those things is a term called the R naught, which is the average t- number of times that a vir- that a person infects other people, and it's a combination of both the virus and its environment. And in the early days. Our understanding was that probably the R naught was around about two, two to three. Um, but if you don't do anything at all, 
um, we are not maybe at five six in some situations. So if you're in a very crowded situation, such as New York City, for example, it may be five to six. So each person infects another five or six people. Correct. Um, and I heard um, on a podcast, and I cannot recall the person who said to give them the appropriate credit, that <laughs> <laughs> um, somebody said that the uh, that our brains are not wired to think exponentially, we think linearly. And so um, thinking about things, with this virus, it multiplies exponentially. So we have an exponential curve. So, you know, in effect, it doubles every two to three days in the number of people. And so, you know, when you've got small numbers, you know, one becomes two, then two becomes four, then four becomes eight. But you can see very, very rapidly, you can go up to very, very large numbers. Um, and it is, um, it takes a lot of effort to tampen that down. Now, if you let the virus rip through a population, you may not be able to tampen that down fast enough to prevent a very large number of cases, which then translates into large number of hospitalizations, um, overwhelmed intensive care units, and then death. And so while on a theoretical level, there may be some attraction to thinking, oh, you know, maybe we can go and get herd immunity. Um, in practice, we have seen um, from two countries um, which so deliberately have started going down that path, and one is Sweden, um, and the other one was the UK. Um, and the UK started going down the track of having herd, using herd immunity for natural means. And then has very rapid, then when they saw what devastating impact that approach was having, quickly changed their mind and tried to implement mitigation strategies. Um, and yet, you know, they are now, I think, at 35,000 deaths. Um, Sweden, in comparison to its neighboring countries, has a very significant number of deaths. Um, I personally don't think that that is the appropriate approach. And it is my understanding that um, political leadership in Australia does not think that herd immunity is an appropriate approach. But this is not, um, that it's not commensurate with the values of Australian society, um, that we allow that many to die. But then going back to the R naught, um, if your R naught, in fact, is closer to five to six, then you need to have 85% of your population 
have been naturally infected or have been given vaccine to be immune before herd immunity takes place. Versus if you're talking about an R0 of about um, two to three, then you probably only need about 55% of the population. There's still a lot of people, though. Which is a lot of people. So we're in the western suburbs of Melbourne and there is a large cluster in our area around the cedar meats plant. So we are actually experiencing as a region the impact of a cluster. I mean, understanding internationally where there have been places or environments where this virus is grossly like wildfire can really provide really important insights so that one recognises that a single case in one of those settings is an emergency and um, potentially will cause a major cluster or outbreak. So um, some of those lessons which we have learnt from other countries, such as the United States, is that um, prisons, jails, detention facilities, um, um, meat processing, abattoir, poultry um, plants, um, and nursing homes or assisted living facilities, that those are all areas where um, the virus, once once a single person is infected, it can spread through those like wildfire. And so rapidly identifying a single case is really important. And then the public health response to that is absolutely critical Um, and a very rapid response is critical to prevent that from spreading further within that setting and prevent it from spilling over into the community or across the other settings. With such widespread outbreaks across the United States, Marion is shocked at the failure of the logistics efforts, which are normally a core part of a public health emergency response, and the United States is renowned for usually producing a very effective logistics response. I mean, one thing that I have seen um, the US do really well is logistics. Logistics is a really important part of a response. And yet it has just been an absolute nightmare to just see a complete failure or abdication of that logistics responsibility by the federal government in the United States is is just something which I would not have ever imagined. I would never have imagined that each individual state would have to go and try and procure um, its personal protective equipment, its ventilators, its testing supplies, 
bidding against other states in a massive bidding war with, um, it's, you know, wasting so much time. Um, some of those places are still in the exponential part of the curve going up in the number of cases. And so I absolutely fear for um, the healthcare system um, is probably highly unlikely to be able to cope with the influx of um, of cases. And I think one of the things which distresses me is that the I think there's a false argument being put forward. It's sort of like public health versus the economy. And I think that's not the correct dichotomy that there is. I think public health absolutely totally understands the consequences which are so devastating to the economy. And having a bad economy has very detrimental effects also on mental health and the physical well-being. And so I think our public health colleagues are doing, are taking that responsibility very seriously and wanting to do everything in their power to keep it as safe as possible to reopen. Um, and, you know, putting parameters in place that these are what we're going to be following and only when these are met are we going to open and we're going to open up cautiously step by step and re-evaluate, continue to do the testing, etc. cetera. Um, because what you don't want to have is have a need to do, to clamp down really hard again. You know, the way that I'm thinking about this is, you know, we're very, thinking about it like we've got a break on we're very cautiously taking our foot off a break, watching very carefully what's happening. And if we are seeing an increase, then we may have to go and push that break down again to some extent, but hopefully not have to do implement the very significant physical distancing that we've had to beforehand. Over the last few months, I've noticed that Almost every decision relating to our preparation for a COVID response required the input of Dr. Marion Kaner. It made me think, you must be getting really tired. Um, I, uh, uh, I sometimes get tired. <laughs> I, um, I do really value my walks on the beach. Um, they really help um, ground me and um, re-energize me. Um, and, you know, I like to sort of say, like, as I walk on the beach, the cobwebs in my brain go away and I can think a lot more clearly and strategically. And so I think that really, really, really helps. Um, catching... Um, Webinars or conference calls um, from the United States or Singapore means that it sometimes is very, very early mornings and sometimes very late evenings, which also plays into this. 
I have found it incredibly helpful um, to understand what we might be facing or where there are issues with international supply chains, which we may not yet be aware of. Um, so, for example, with regards to testing supplies, you know, um, you know there was a webinar um, in the early hours of this morning. Sorry, it's hard for me to remember. It was late. It was in the middle of the night. Put it that way. <laughs> yeah, it was like in the early yes, in the middle of the night. Um, you know, saying, you know, they relied on this rapid test, um, in their emergency department and, um, it is impossible to get the appropriate supplies and that has such very significant associated ripple effects. What would you say, what would the message be if you could give a message now to your colleagues in the United States if they were listening? Don't give up. <laughs> Don't give up. Keep up doing the hard, hard work that you're doing. Um, and if we ignore science, we do so at our detriment. And so having leadership pay attention to science and listen to science is absolutely critically important. Um, I think that's probably one of my main messages. But this is an interconnected world as well. And I think one of the other big things is um, we really have to learn from each other. We shouldn't have to relearn the lessons in every country. We should look as to what has happened elsewhere think that we might be in a similar situation, what can we do to prevent that from happening? What are the mitigation strategies which we can put in? Or how would we react if we were in that kind of situation? Um, that's sort of like one big thing. The other thing I think the big, big lesson is speed. You have to make decisions really rapidly. Um, and I'd mentioned this earlier, our brains are not taught to think on an exponential scale. We think on a linear scale. Um, and, you know, a decision which you make that is delayed by a single day can have absolutely devastating consequences. So rapid decision-making is absolutely, totally critical. And yet you have sort of this paradox that if you act rapidly enough to have a significant impact, then people at the end will say, well, why did you do that? It never was as bad as you said. That's the point. We are in an extraordinarily fortunate situation. Absolutely not by chance. It's because evidence science-based decisions were taken um, rapidly, but we also can be 
extraordinarily grateful that the Australian population as a whole has heeded the advice given and had implemented the physical distancing. Leadership um, on a political level, at a health department level, tend to provide the guidance. And it is, there's an enormous power that lies in every single individual to really have an impact here and collectively. Um, in Australia, we have shown the power of these public health measures to um, be in a situation which um, is frankly the envy of the world. And we are so incredibly fortunate. And my heart still goes out to the suffering which we have seen um, and the lives that we have lost. Every single one of those is one too many. But in comparison to what could have been, we are extraordinarily fortunate and we need to just be not complacent right now. We need to see what happens. We need to see what happens if you don't listen to science, if you do not go and implement. Let those be lessons to us. There are so many people in Australia who have sacrificed so much with regard to their livelihood. Yeah, and we need to honour the sacrifice that people have made and ensure that we don't squander that. Marion is extremely grateful to be in Australia and not the United States at this point in history, and she's particularly pleased that the Australian and Victorian governments have taken a science-based response to COVID-19 and that the organisation she works for, Western Health, is one where, as she says, science has a real seat at the table and the executive leadership are driven to make science-based decisions. This has been The Unifying Call, presented by Western Health. Please share this episode with five colleagues so these stories can reach and inspire more people. For more information, follow the links in the podcast description.